Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? My name is Maya, and I am the host of this podcast. Um, I created What Was Her Name, and it will be actually almost a year that this uh, baby podcast has been airing, and each season we air 12 stories, um, so 12 individuals who come forward and share um, really their trauma, and it's been uh, an incredible experience to say the least. Um, We have seen husbands recognize abusive patterns in themselves and put themselves in therapy. We have seen um, families be able to cope and better help um, daughters who have been in abusive relationships and gain sympathy um, and compassion for them. We have seen, you know, girls who have identified themselves in an abusive relationship and have left that relationship. Um, And we've seen a lot of healing um, for people to listen to other people's stories and realize that they are not alone because it happened to somebody else too. And that's the point of what was her name. That's why I made what was her name. And so it's really amazing that only in one year um, to hear the testimonies coming from this podcast. And so I'm really excited for um, seasons to come as well. Um, This episode is going to look a bit different. I am actually going to be sharing my story. And some of you who are listening are probably wondering what I mean because I actually already shared my story on season one, episode one on um, honeymoon horror story. And the reason that I'm resharing my story is because as what was her name is growing, um, that episode is where people start. And I've re-listened to that episode and there are certain statements that I don't actually believe anymore and don't um, stand by. And so I'm going to reshare my story here, maybe provide a bit more context as well to my story and more information to my story, while also, yeah, while also um, explaining sort of my values and where I stand when it comes to domestic violence. And so I am going to start from the beginning. So my name is Maya Huber. I am 27 years old and I have been out of an abusive marriage for approximately two years. Um, I met my ex-husband in Hawaii um, at a missionary base called Youth with a Mission in Honolulu, Hawaii. I had moved there when I was like 18, 19 years old. No, actually, scratch that. I moved there when I was, yeah, actually, I was 20, um, going on 21. I had my 21st birthday there. 
Um, and I felt like God was calling me to be a missionary. And I uh, essentially finished out my sophomore year of college, told my family that I was going to basically use all the money in my bank account to um, buy a one-way ticket to Honolulu, Hawaii. And they thought I was crazy, obviously, and um, my family did not come around to it for, you know, probably a year. Um, but I could not ignore the call that I felt and the pull that I felt towards um, towards Hawaii. And so um, I remember sitting on this plane and I was a young 20 years old and I was crying and I was listening to this song, um, this like Christian song um, in this worship I had. Uh, and I was just sobbing in the back of the plane because I was like, am I ruining my life? But I like felt like so strong that I was supposed to go here, but God didn't really say why. And so I just was like, are you going to tell me any more information or am I going to have to like just walk literally step by step and wait until you like show a little bit more of the path, um, which is so God, I feel like sometimes um, just really <laughs> working on that patience and trust for sure. And so I moved to Hawaii and joined um, on this, uh, you know, YWAM base. I stayed there over the summer before school started and um, basically what they have this program where you can stay um, for room and board and food and you just work for them and do outreach and so that's what I was doing and um, some weeks leading up to my school starting I had first met my ex-husband and um, I will say that I thought at the time that it was love at first sight. I have a lot of qualms with that phrase, love at first sight, um, but I won't get into that right now. Um, and we started a friendship over the course of those two weeks before school started, um, and I developed a crush on him, and he developed a crush on me, but something about youth with a mission is that they have this uh, rule that you can't date anybody while you are in the discipleship training school, which is what I was doing. So it's like a, I believe like a six month process. And so you can't start a new relationship and you especially can't start a new relationship with a staff member. And he was on staff in the school and he was actually leading a, another team over to India. I was going to go to Nepal. And we, throughout the course of, you know, the, the next month um, in school and training, we had developed kind of this like secret, secret friendship, like, but also he had communicated that he was interested in me and liked me and um, it was off limits. And so it was kind of like mysterious and secretive. And so, um, you know, it was it was where things started and where things uh, began. And I ended up, uh, you know, going off to Nepal. He went to India and 
Um, I'm going to note a part here that I think is interesting. And at the time, I overlooked it um, and dismissed it. But I do believe that it it likely was a red flag that I just didn't want to see. Um, so when I was on my trip, I had had a um, someone on my team who had come to me and essentially said that, um, you know, my ex did not like me and that he did not have a crush on me and was not interested in me. And I was like, why is she saying this? You know, what does she know? Um, it's off limits anyway, so what does she know? And when I had come back to America, um, we had had a conversation and we sat down and we talked about what she had said. And, you know, he at the time had communicated to me that he didn't know what she was talking about and that they had had like a brief conversation Um And it was regarding a picture that I had posted on Instagram of me in a bikini. And it wasn't this, like, really revealing photo. It was just I was on the beach and I lived in Hawaii. And he had made a comment to her that um, he would never date a girl like that, like, who would post a a picture in her bikini. And what I didn't realize was that there was a lot more going on in that situation. Um, he essentially like put me down in front of this girl because he wanted to like impress her or something. And, um, also like had, had a conversation with me about how I needed to change basically and be more modest. And there's nothing wrong with modesty. Like, But the way that he went about it and how he handled the situation and then how I think even from that point, like, I started to change for him um, was just not not, um, the way that it should have been handled and also was a red flag. So moving along, I forgave him and I just pushed past it and kind of classified this girl as like, oh, she's wrong or she's lying because he's denying a lot of the stuff that that he said. But I later found out that um, what he said was not what he communicated. It was even worse. There was a lot more judgment um, being cast towards me. Um, and she was trying to like tell me that he doesn't like me and she... I should have listened to her because she saw something that I didn't. She had a conversation with him that he wasn't willing to, you know, confess to me. And if I would have known that and he would have confessed that, like, and he would have admitted the things that he said, I definitely wouldn't have moved forward with him because it was mean. So I wouldn't want to be with someone like that. Um, But he kept it a secret and I didn't know about it. So moving along, we kept dating Um, and we dated for like a very brief time and he had communicated to me pretty early on that he didn't believe in dating. I know, I know, I know what you're all thinking. Um, I was 21, give me a break. And I was just young and I didn't know better. And I, I mean, that, that could sound like an excuse. I, I just didn't know better. Like, no, I really was just absorbing everything in Youth with a Mission and learning so much and you um, absorb so much. And they had had this teacher um, 
who had come into YWAM and they have multiple that they um they have them teach for a session and then they teach about a different topic and this teacher had taught about dating and he had made a comment that dating wasn't essentially biblical and you know had this big talk with us about it and so there were quite a few people in my DTS and in you know on staff that really didn't believe in dating and um, my ex was one of them and so he had had a conversation with me that like basically we would start with marriage like there would not be dating and so he essentially quote-unquote courted me for like a couple of months but it was really just like a month and I did not feel comfortable with marrying somebody right away I had always had the mindset of like dating for like maybe three to four years um, and having like a long relationship so that I could know but God was so intertwined within my decision because I had a lot of people telling me that this was my future husband but I also really wanted him to be my future husband and like I have um if I'm totally honest I have a lot of unhealed like not yet worked through bitterness towards um youth with a mission in Honolulu Hawaii um I think the organization within itself does not like implement healthy bases that are all consistent within the country and within the world. And so it's hit or miss depending on which school you go to, how each director handles things and the staff that they bring on to lead the schools and I mean these staff can be you can be you know 25 years old in youth with a mission and have a staff member who's 19 or 18 who already did their their DTS who's leading you off to um you know Cambodia and while that's great and the Bible talks about you know it age does not matter like God is God is working and evident in you know a five-year-old's life I don't think that it's wise to just place any staff member at any age over you know others who are absorbing and learning so much because there were a lot of like theologically incorrect and just unbiblical things that were being taught to us and it can really damage it can really damage people. And I know a lot of people who I did YWAM with who are either like not Christians now, who aren't following the Lord, who've had to like unpack and go to therapy for things that they've learned or who were like stuck for years because they could not function in society because they weren't in the um, so-called YWAM bubble where they're around these Christians who are on fire for the Lord for six months or they're on staff for a year or two and it's not real like the YWAM bubble being in a bubble full of people who are like extremely on fire for the Lord is not like that's not normal that's not something that 
happens in the real world. And people have a really hard time integrating back into it. So you kind of have this like incredible experience and you're, you know, you experience God in these really crazy ways. And then YWAM says, okay, well, you did your time. Um, now go back to the real, real world. Like they don't even have a program to like really help you unpack and like, like put you like back and get you used to society. And a lot of YWAMers will tell you this. It's really hard. And so I have a lot of, uh, yeah, I have a lot of bitterness towards YWAM that I recognize. Like bitterness is not great and I need to work through it and, and um, I am. But <clears throat> that being said, um, YWAM had allowed this teacher to come in and speak about, you know, dating. And it was just, I don't agree with anything that he said um, anymore, obviously. But at the time, um, I knew that that was kind of the option I had. And I really, I really wanted it to be him. And so I can't just say, you know, people just told me to marry him and he had this belief. And so, you know, I just, you know, dilly-dallied on my way. Like, it's everyone's fault. Like, no, I wanted him to be my husband. I really wanted God to confirm that for me. And I think I heard things that I, to this day, don't really know the answer to. Um, And it used to mess with me. And it really made it difficult in my relationship with the Lord because I struggled because I was like, God, you called me to be in marriage with this person who abused me and like tormented me for years. How can you be a good God? Um, How can I ever trust what I heard? And how do I know if I'm actually hearing God's voice or if I'm hearing my voice? Um, Why didn't you provide what I needed in those years? Like, I just felt like I was in... (laughs) I felt like I was in this like drought for years and like nobody brought water. And so I'm like, God, like I just really struggled with God. And that's probably a whole topic for another episode. Um, And, you know, we ended up, he proposed to me after like maybe a month, I think. And we had known each other for a full year at that point. And really the way that he went about it was very like lazy and careless. And that was kind of the first time that I ever questioned him just in the sense that, you know, I never thought I was in danger, but I remember thinking like, he's not going to put more effort into like proposing to me. It was like very unplanned, unprepared. It wasn't really that romantic either. It was just kind of like, he just kind of just got on a knee and asked me and like, wasn't, wasn't, prepared. And I remember feeling disappointed by it. And I just felt like, I just felt like sad about it. And, um, that was the first time I ever had, had anxiety, um, regarding him. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, I would have like extreme anxiety and panic attacks. And we were planning to actually get married within that month. So we were eloping and having a destination wedding. And I could not shake this like anxiety that I was having. Like it was pretty terrible. And he slowly started to confess 
things to me um, within these two weeks. But I still at this point didn't didn't peg him as anyone who could be dangerous. At the time, I was told through a mentor that we had at YWAM who was on staff that it was a spiritual attack. So I'll provide more context as to what the confession was. So um, right after that time where, you know, we leading up to our engagement, I mean, we were sitting at the playground nearby our school and he had, you know, essentially confessed to me that he had been thinking about one of my friends that lived, she was, she lived in the house that I lived in and she was one of my closest friends. He had confessed that he was thinking about her and that he thought that he liked her and told me like 10 different qualities about her that he liked. And I remember sitting there thinking like, okay, crap, like he's going to tell me that he likes my friend and that he's letting me down easy. Like, you know, of course I, I know that she's great and pretty and funny. Like, what do you want? Like, why are you telling me this? Like, just break up with me. And um, he was like, no, 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 I, I don't want to break up with you. I just felt like you should know. I just like don't know why I'm thinking this, but I don't want to be with her. I don't like her. And I remember just like walking out of the playground, like needing a second and just like sobbing because I just felt like not, I felt less than like, to be honest, like it really hit my confidence because it was someone that I was close to. And I was like, man, like, why is this person who I love thinking about somebody else? Like, that's not right. And, um, what's wrong with me? That's where I went with it. And, um, you know, got myself together, uh, came back to the playground and, you know, he was so apologetic. Like he was like, I really don't like her. I really don't want to be with her. And I was like, okay, like I believe you. Cause to that point he had been this very like steady, kind, funny, like smart, like trustworthy person. Like he was consistent and we all loved him. Like if you're listening to this and you were in YWAM and you knew him, um, we all loved him. I mean, he was, he was great. He, I mean, I I knew a lot of girls who were in my school who had a crush on him and we would all say like, whoever ends up with this person is going to be just lucky. Like they're going to hit the jackpot because he was great. And so hearing this great guy say something to me like this, I was like, well, I forgive you because like, you're great. So like, this must just, you know, be something weird. Like maybe you're, maybe you're struggling because you have cold feet. I, I don't know. And so, um, over the course of the next two weeks though, he started to bring confessions to me and they were all people who were in my community. And if you know anything about YWAM, um, each base has, Um, schools that run through it. So you'll have, you know, for a a discipleship training school, a hundred students and the base is packed with people. And then um, you'll make best friends and then they'll all travel and go back home. And then a new school comes in and you make more best friends. And so it's just this consistent like circle of like, I feel like best friends that keep coming in and out. Um, But it's also, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of people you get very close to very quickly because the base is not that big and the grounds aren't that big. And so, um, for him to, to pinpoint people who I was close to, um, it started to create this thing in my mind where I felt like I needed to distance myself from those people because one, I couldn't tell them, you know, Hey, my boyfriend, um, you know, thinks your lips look really nice today. Uh, true confession, by the way, I couldn't say like, you know, Oh, like your butt is 
your butt um, looks good in those jeans. Um, also a true confession, you know, like I, um, he thinks you're really, really funny and like really gets along with your personality and thinks that like he kind of likes you. Like that would be weird. They would be like, okay, like, and, you know, um, and so I distanced myself from them. And I think part of the reason I, I did it, and I only realized this until years later, was because I was trying to protect them because I cared about them and loved their friendship and loved them. And so I thought by distancing myself, I could somehow salvage what was left of that friendship because I was really trapped in comparison and it was very toxic. Um, the way that my mind just like took it and like was like took it so personal like that shows like where I was I think as well um because I shouldn't have been so easily knocked by somebody who was comparing me to all these other women but I think you know there's so much I've found so much compassion for myself where I'm like yeah like anybody would eventually get knocked by it because you know, that's not, we're not meant to experience that. That's not normal. Um, and we had actually gone to some people on staff who are married on base and told them what was happening. And both like also individually, he had gone to the, the, actually the director's husband and had communicated, um, some of his struggles about other women and they were dismissed. Um, it was a quote-unquote spiritual attack it was just like the enemy um and we just needed to pray essentially and he had had a private conversation with the director but the director you know kind of swept it under the rug dismissed it and kind of just told him his own struggles and it sounds like there was no real like should we be like concerned that you're like saying these things to her there was nothing like that and I remember like our mentors on base telling me like that this was the person that God had for me and that we were experiencing the spiritual attack because we were about to get you know married and so I I really trusted her and so I was like yeah maybe she's right and so I started to like pray kind of like profusely for him and I couldn't really shake this anxiety that I was having and I was like, I don't want to be disobedient to God either if this is the person that he has for me and this is just a spiritual attack. And I was thinking like it will go away once we get married. Oh, how I was wrong. (laughs) And it breaks my heart like just even like saying that and remembering that I thought that because it couldn't have been farther from what was about to happen to me. And so. We ended up um, going. We ended up going um, to Colorado, where we were going to elope, and we had about like twenty people, so family, and then our closest um, friends. And we got married in this like beautiful forest there. And um, the night before we had gotten married, um, he actually had confessed to me about a girl who he was struggling with, um, who was somebody from his hometown that was one of his best friends growing up and that he was thinking about her and like started confessing all these like weird things like about her, like that he had done like thing. It's not even, that's not, that's not my point, but he started confessing these weird things about her. And I was like, 
I don't know why you're telling me this. Like, I'm not going to hold you to anything like from the past. Like, that's the past. But do you want to be with her? And he was like, I, I don't know. He was like, no. And I was like, I feel like you don't like you don't love me like because of you're confessing all these things. It sounds like you want to be with someone else. And he was like, no, I don't know why I'm doing this. Like, I want to be with you. But he did come forward and say that night that he didn't know if he loved me. And that was kind of where I was like, I was like, I drew the line and I was like, okay, we need to time out for a minute. And I was like, I can't marry you like this. And so I actually gave him my wedding ring and I went to the room and I cried. And I was like thinking, how do I tell all these people who flew here? Um, His family flew in from Germany where he's from. And so I'm like, how do I tell people that we're not going to get married because this person doesn't love me. And then maybe about an hour later, he came and found me and he told me that he loved me and was crying and was very remorseful and like very sincere and got on one knee and like reproposed to me. And I accepted because I loved him and I didn't know what was going on. And at that point, like maybe some people were listening or all of, all of you were like, like Maya like shaking me because they're like it's right in front of you it's like that you know those like horror movies when like she's like walking and you like know that she shouldn't open the door but like you can't stop her but you like just want to like grab her by the sweater and be like don't go in there that's probably what this feels like um and um I got married to him the next day uh and it was a very like outer body experience and I really like I just how do I say this I disassociated and I was never like in YWAM we don't we don't we don't drink really I don't have a problem with like people like I don't I love wine and beer and these things but that was kind of just the culture in YWAM and so on my wedding day we had had like I think it was champagne and I had drank like a little bit more just to like get myself to like get that anxiety under control I think and it wasn't until like years later my best friend and I were talking and we were talking about you know everything and she was like, I should have known when you kept drinking on your wedding day and like it felt like you were trying to numb something and I couldn't figure out why you were doing that on such a special day. She's like, I should have known. And at that point, she didn't know anything still and I kept it a secret, everything a secret. And I was like trying to like kind of almost like self-medicate to just like go through with it um, because I really wanted it. But something just wasn't right. And um, I wrote a piece and it was talking about, you know, this about my wedding day. And like I had said that it felt like my soul was like motioning and signaling me to stop. And that's that's what I feel like it was. And I I didn't listen. Um, My mom had even sat with me the night before I got married. And she actually said to me, like, you don't have to go through with this. And I remember being super frustrated because I was like she doesn't she doesn't get it um she doesn't get it what does she know I'm 20 
I'm 21 years old. <laughs> it's dumb. And um, she told me that she didn't, she didn't want me to, you know, go through with something that I didn't want to do. And like years later, when I talked to my mom about that, she was like, yeah, I knew he wasn't, I knew he wasn't it. Um, some, she, she had said that from the day she met him, something wasn't right. Um, if you knew him, you knew that he has this kind of like smile where he will like just like smile at you. And it's like this kind of like, like very large, like cheesy smile. And for me, it was always something I was like, this is endearing. Like it's sweet. Like he's very kind. He's just kind. He's always smiling. But my G, um, and my mom were like, they were like, mm, like something feels kind of like fake here. Um, and they didn't really tell me that they didn't think this was my future husband or that he was hiding something. Um, they tried to word it in a way that I would, you know, take it and I didn't. And I was really upset that it was even being discussed the night before my wedding. So I was like, I'm going through with this and this is my husband that I'm going to marry, my future husband. And, um, so fast forward to us, we are in the forest getting married on our destination wedding. And I felt like I was watching myself, like it was a movie or something. I was watching myself. It was very weird. And it was like, I knew deep down that I was making a mistake, but I didn't know. I didn't know at the time, like what I was about to encounter I just like couldn't seem to I don't know it was just very hard it was a very very hard moment and decision to marry somebody and feel like this is the person God's calling me to marry and others are affirming that they you feel like he is my future husband but then this stuff was happening behind closed doors and I'm trying to like stand by his side and protect him and believe in who I've always known him to be and that behavior did not match up with him and he was always very sincere and so I was like he doesn't he doesn't mean it he doesn't want it I don't know what what it is but it's not him and so then um on our honeymoon night was where everything changed and took a turn for the worst and where the other side appeared um, I wrote this piece recently called There Was There Were Two, and it's talking about how you don't get one without two in abusive relationships, and the question that a lot of people have, including myself, um, before I understood abuse was, why would someone stay? Why would someone go back to someone who is abusing them? And it's because there were two, and you don't get one without two, and you learn how to love both more than you. That was what I um, had wrote. And the second side didn't appear until our honeymoon. Um, I watched as my friends were leaving the restaurant where we had our reception. And I remember wanting to go with them, like, and watching all the people I loved, like, leave and just feeling like, I don't know, like, I just felt like, this feeling of like doom and I didn't know why like I just couldn't put a finger on it and I feel like that was how like a lot of people felt looking back like they couldn't put a finger on it but something just didn't feel right and 
so we went back to our Airbnb where we were staying. We had rented out this like cute little house and uh, we hadn't had sex together before marriage. And so we had had sex for the first time together. Um, like I, so I didn't go into that being a virgin. So I want to clarify that, but it was our first time together having sex and TMI. And, you know, he had a very specific way, like how he wanted me to be, um, as far as like what I was wearing. Cause I had bought something that I had wanted to wear and he didn't want me to wear it. And he wanted me to still be in my wedding dress and like, just had this very specific way that he wanted to like, for it to like, for me to look and how it needed to go. And I, at the time I thought that was kind of weird, but I was like, I mean, it was, he, he had claimed that it was his first time. I don't know if I believe that now looking back, but it doesn't really matter. Um, and so I was like, well, it's his first time. So I like want to make it special. So like whatever he needs, you know, I'm going to just, I guess, just like comply with this kind of stuff. It's not a big deal. Um, and after we had had sex, like I noticed that there was like a change in his behavior, um, and in his mood and he just became very like quiet and just kind of cold and so naturally that makes you want to know what what's wrong and you know think did I do something or you know was he not pleased with it or whatever and so then I kind of like started to ask him you know questions and he didn't want to answer them but he like wouldn't snap out of the mood and so I was like kind of worried and then he eventually confessed that he had thought about this girl who he had been struggling with prior to us being on our honeymoon, that he had thought of her in place of me at the altar. And he was thinking about marrying her and that while we had sex, he was picturing her, like her head on my body um, in bed, like, while we were having sex, and I was just, like, beside myself, and lost it, like, I took my wedding ring off, put it on the side table, and he actually left the room and went into the kitchen, and I remember like just sobbing uncontrollably and thinking like surely he's going to hear me and he's going to come in here and he's going to console me. And that moment never came of consolation. Like he never came. And it was like it was like this person who I had known um left the building and like this new person had like walked in. And he was in the kitchen. Like I think he was making eggs or something and he was unfaced and I remember sitting there thinking like I need to call my mom and then remembering like what she said and just thinking like she's gonna be right like I should have listened to her and then I started to think about the rumors and what people would think and what people would say um but then came this remembrance of like a covenant that I made before God and that divorce was not an option and so I put back my ring 
put back my ring on my finger and I kind of pulled myself together. He had come in back in the room and he apologized profusely, crying. I mean, I don't think he was not crying, but he was very, very sorry. And I forgave him. And I was like, at this point, like still so confused. And he was saying it's a spiritual attack. It's a spiritual attack. He doesn't know why he wants to have these things in his head. And over the course of our honeymoon, I would experience some very just bizarre behavior from him and very erratic behavior. And on our honeymoon, there was a time where I had my head like laying in his lap and he had later confessed that he had thought to take one of the butcher knives and stand in our um in the kitchen and take that butcher knife and like take it across my no- my throat and like slice my throat open and like watch like the blood or something like slice my th- my throat open um on our honeymoon and when I had heard that confession, it explained a lot more because there was a lot of very bizarre behavior and I couldn't understand why. Um, but those were some of the worst days I think I've ever had. Like, because your honeymoon is supposed to be this like amazing, fun experience and something you remember forever. And for me, I was like, I felt trapped um, and scared. And I didn't tell anybody, but I, all I wanted to do was like call my mom and like go home. Um, and felt like I couldn't. And so it was very, very scary. And up to that point, I'd kind of pushed out a lot of people who are my friends. So I wasn't going to them either. Um, so I was very isolated and very alone. And so we finished out our honeymoon, um, And then we moved back to Hawaii where we would um, continue out of school before we would move to Nepal to be long-term missionaries. So we had had this plan that we were going to move to Nepal in the next, you know, three months and we were going to move our lives there and and do missions long-term. And we were doing a school in YWAM kind of preparing us for that move. And (laughs) another thing about YWAM. I think I may just do a whole episode on this um, at some point. It doesn't really, it doesn't really factor and maybe I'll just write something about it. But uh, we actually had lived in a home. They have a bunch of these little houses throughout the property. And we lived in a house with 14 other young girls, any ranging anywhere from like 18 to probably 25. And we shared a bathroom with them and a shower and a kitchen. And we lived in this house with them as a newly married couple in this like small corner room. And for me, that was like a nightmare because he was already confessing things about women. And so to like be in a house was very triggering because I was very afraid like what girl he would struggle with and then come and tell me about. And, um, I think looking back also, that's, that's like, really unwise and to know that like a missionary organization receives so much money as a nonprofit. I mean, my school was almost, I think it was $10,000. Um, and you, you know, you say there's 
20 students in a DTS and you're filtering through multiple schools a year, um, receiving $10,000 and you can't take care of like a staff member, two staff members who've dedicated their time to this organization to at least live somewhere where like they don't have to live with 14 other girls. Um, there was no communication, like nothing, nothing, like nothing. Those directors didn't do a single lick of anything to try and like communicate with us or welcome us back into the base. They just gave us a room. And it makes me really mad because that's not the way that it should be. And that should be, I mean, God, um, marriage is so important to God and God loves marriage. And like, I think that like, it's really important to protect and to like, have concern for newly married couples because it's a very special season, but it's also like, there should be a lot of, um, I think encouragement and help for, and guidance for people who are newly married because marriage is very hard and it is not what everybody thinks that it is. Um, it is beautiful and it is, um, it is, you know, with the right person can be an incredible experience, but it's also the hardest thing that I think one of the hardest things that people do, um, is to like remain in a marriage long, like for a long period of time forever with somebody like it's hard. And so (coughs) we were not set up for success is what I'm trying to say in my spiel. (laughs) Um, and he started to struggle with the girls, um, on base in our rooms, um, nearby, but there was one individual who he was struggling with particularly, um, and she was a student in the school and she became the first person that he ever truly like fixated on and it wouldn't be the last person. I would say in the first year of marriage, he probably confessed like more than 50 women, maybe a hundred. I'm not sure. Um, but definitely 50 or more. And she had become a fixation that he had. Um, and it, that fixation lasted about two or three months and it would just be on this girl that he thought and, you know, was just amazing. And he would confess, you know, a lot of physical things he liked about her and stuff like this and, um, kind of used this girl as someone who he would think about while we were intimate and, um, stuff like this. And so at this point I started to become very ill Um, I had come down with mono and strep throat and I was like bedridden for probably a month. I didn't attend school and there was even seasons where like I could barely get out of bed to go to the restroom and, and so he would have to like help me to the bathroom and I would see a lot of doctors and they couldn't really figure out why I couldn't shake the mono or the strep. I kept getting strep over and over and looking back, I think it was depression and anxiety and and the stress. My body just kind of like collapsed. And so I was like staying in this room and then he would go to school and come back and confess these things. And I would like weep. And I think I cried like every night for the first, I probably cried every night for the first two years, but I think I definitely cried every night the first the first year and um I would just weep like myself to sleep and 
there was one day where he came into the room and you know, he became very cold and very like distant. And so that was always kind of an indicator that I was about to receive a confession. And I would, I would always ask. Um, and I know that maybe some of you are like thinking I would just have not asked because I wouldn't have wanted to know what was in his head. But I think for me, it became this like weird thing where I like needed to know because I think I was trying to like find a reason to like leave or like to excuse myself from this marriage. And so I'd be asking like, what, you know, like, what is it? You know, like, what are you struggling with? And he told me that he was struggling with my beauty. And he gave some examples of like ways that I didn't measure up physically to him um, sexually, but also like my beauty when I'm sick. So he didn't think that I was beautiful um without makeup on and when I was sick he questioned my my beautiful my beauty and that really hit me hard because up until that point he had been saying he didn't want other girls but it was always about other girls but to hear like your husband say that he doesn't he doesn't think that you're enough and that you're beautiful enough that was really something that shook my shook me and like my confidence pretty much just cracked in half at that point and um I started to do things to like fit his preferences so he had really like catered towards like brunettes he had told me that that was his type and so I actually dyed my hair brown at one point and I remember like walking in the room and telling him showing him my hair and he told me that I looked like his ex-girlfriend um (laughs) and then he started to struggle with his ex-girlfriend for I mean throughout our marriage really for the first like two years and so it just seemed like no matter what I did to try and like please him it didn't work um I was eating very minimal food I had developed an eating disorder at this point I was weighing probably like 115 was just trying to be like as you know perfect as possible and then in public I would like go out um but like I had a really hard time connecting with people and like even my friends I just didn't hang out with them because most of them had moved off base because that's how it works people just will be on the property for short periods of time and then they leave unless you're on staff and so there was a season where I wasn't super close with the people on staff. Like we were just all friends, but nothing, you know, no close, close friends. And so I would like put myself together and pretend like everything was fine. But then behind closed doors, everything was really not fine. And there was a one point where, you know, he had confessed more things about um, girls and it just became this constant fight of like not feeling like I'm enough. And... I had gone on his phone. I think I was like Googling something. And then when I was in Google, I like sneakily went into his history search. And I saw that he had been looking up how to um, commit suicide and like specific ways how to commit suicide that he was like contemplating. And so I confronted him with it. He admitted to it. And I could see that he was unwell. And so I took it to these mentors that were on base, this that are on staff, 
And essentially, like, she basically said to, like, marriage is hard. Like, go back to your husband and go back. Like, go back home to your husband and, like, pray for him. And that was the first time anybody ever dismissed me like that. And it would take a long time before I would come forward again about anything because it was a cry for help and we were just like denied that. And so we dealt with that in quiet. Um, his like suicidal, um, yeah, his suicidal thoughts that he started to have. And I became, you know, really scared that he was going to do it. And so I would like have to check in on him a lot. And it kind of just, um, became this thing where I'd check in with him to make sure that he was like not going to go jump off the building next door. And, um, he would tell me that he wanted to like go jump off a building, like, or down, down at the university or different things like this. And so it really scared me and made me kind of like shape up the way I responded because I I didn't want him to like hurt himself. And so then we, um, we ended up finishing out the school and then we moved to Nepal. Um, and we lived in this house there that these missionaries had provided for us. And this point is where, um, everything changed and the confessions changed and it became very dark and scary um we had lived in this house and his behavior started to become like aggressive um he started to like yell more and swear and like like I guess just like throw profanity or he would throw items across the room or house and like hit walls and punch walls and like I'm not a very like passionate person when it comes to fighting like I think if anything I'm more like I think especially after everything I've experienced I've I tend to like I think retreat and shut down a bit more um which I'm working on now in therapy but back then it was like very shocking for me to see somebody like throw things like that and like just react that way um especially this person who was like so like tender sweet and kind and like this was not the same person and um I was always hoping that the other person would like come home um and return and what I didn't realize was like that you could not get that one without the two and like the two was just always there to remind you like that the one was not the only thing there. Um, and he had, he had confessed some very like perverted topics to me that really scared me. And also some very dark <clears throat> confessions. So some examples of that. Um, there was a night where he confessed some perverted things. And we were down by the lake in like more the city area. And we had lived in the village. And we had 
were borrowing a motorcycle um, and I, I couldn't drive it. So I was the only, he was my only mode of transportation. So I genuinely could not just like leave. Um, so we're in this like, this like country, like in a village and away from all our friends and family with like no community. And he had confessed some like perverted things. I freaked out. I like panicked, got up and um, we were sitting by the lake. I got up and I started to just like, like almost run out of the um, like part of the lake we were at. And it's like, there's a city right behind the lake. Um, it's like a city on a lake. It was very, very beautiful. And I started to like, just like run down the pavement. And I was like trying to figure out how to get home. And I realized that sounds crazy. And that's because it is crazy. Like I was trying to go home um, and find my my mom. Um, and I think I was like losing it. Like I was just on the verge of like a mental break like I was I just like could not handle another confession and I was just dissipating like it was it was terrible and um so I'm like crying and I'm like running through the streets and I hid in this like alleyway and I saw him trying to find me and I remember just feeling so scared and feeling just like I just didn't know what to do because nobody really spoke English. And so I was just like, I don't know. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. And he ended up finding me and he was upset with me. And he grabbed my hand and we started to walk to the bike. And we actually ran into some other YWAMers who were from um, Youth with a Mission who were staying there in um, the same place. They were working um, just for a couple of weeks there. Um, at this nonprofit, and what they didn't know was that I had just tried to escape this person, and um, it was like I so desperately wanted to ask them to help me, but I just didn't know how, and I didn't, it was like, it was like I knew I was in, like, I knew that I was in trouble, like, I knew that I needed help out, but I also, like, couldn't for myself prove that, like, I was in trouble, because, like, I didn't know if it was, like, he was just something was wrong with him or if like it was a spiritual attack at that point because that's what we kept going back to is like praying against a spiritual attack on him because this isn't who he is and so um I remember that they asked us how we were doing and they had stopped us on the street and he just like pretended like everything was fine and that we were great and we weren't um little did they know we were I was trying to run away from him <laughs> and um we got back on the bike and he was very mad. So he was driving pretty like aggressively on the interstate. And I kind of like loosened my grip and told him that I was going to, that I wanted to like fall off the bike. Like I wanted to kill myself, that I didn't want to live anymore. And I remember like, I was just weeping and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I just remember thinking like, like I could let go of this this right now I could end it right here and just fall off the bike like nobody would care I wouldn't have to deal with the confessions anymore and I could get out of my marriage like if I just fall off this bike then I'm not I don't have to be with him anymore and it breaks my heart like thinking that that was me and that I said those things because um sorry um because it's 
it makes like me um feel really angry with the way that like the church um condones abuse because I was crying out for help and people weren't listening and there's so many individuals who are trapped inside of abusive relationships and abuse like I'm talking abusive marriages within the Christian community that feel like their only option is like death and it breaks my heart because it's like that's why this episode is called till death is because like if you don't get out and you don't remove yourself from an abusive relationship, like, that's what you're signing up for, is, like, truly till death do us part, but not, like, the natural death where you die at, like, 85 and you go to heaven. Like, like I'm talking, like, it should not be a marriage where that is an option. It should not be a marriage where, like, you are dissipating and who you are is, like, fading away because of someone who's either emotionally abusing you, psychologically abusing you, sexually abusing you, physically abusing you, financially abusing you, spiritually abusing you. Like that is not the covenant of marriage. And that covenant has been broken. As soon as those kinds of things are entered in, like it breaks you from covenant and you are free to walk away from it. That is not the father's heart for you. And I didn't know that. And nobody was telling me that. Nobody was saying that. And so I am a young 21 years old on this motorbike in Nepal thinking that if I let go of this bike right now, that I could just end it all and like wouldn't have to do this anymore and that that is not how it should be and it breaks my heart and fuels me with anger that nobody told me what I'm saying right now and it wasn't like I didn't ask and so it 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 makes me realize that there are others out there who who are in that same position and some who have even reached out to me and been like whoa I didn't know this and now I do and now I'm I've I've left you know and um to get sorry to get back to the story so I told him that um I get so like riled up when it comes to certain topics um and you guys are like come on my it's been an hour um but yeah so I told him that I wanted to die and I loosened my grip from him and I extended my arm out and he revved up on the engine so fast that like I tilted backwards and almost fell off and then I gripped to his jacket got back like pulled myself back up and I remember crying just thinking like he just tried to like throw me off the bike like he just tried to kill me and I was infuriated when we got to the house and I was like what what was that why would you do that and he was like well I was trying to teach you a lesson like you know, like I was trying to teach you a lesson that if you don't let go, then you're going to fall out, kind of something like this. There was no, like, there was no empathy. Um, and this was probably one of the ugliest fights I think we've ever had. And, um, one of the scariest like nights that I've ever encountered with him. Um, the house was like a, like it was, there was two levels to the house and, I was, I went into the bedroom and I locked the door 
And I remember hearing him and he was kind of just like, like losing it, just very angry. Like he was, I could hear him like swearing and talking to himself and he was throwing, he threw something upstairs and I'd hear him like come down the stairs and go up the stairs and come down and he would come to the door and I would just have this door locked and be terrified like that he would come inside. And this kind of continued on for a while Um, and I was just praying on my knees in the room because I was just very, very scared and um eventually that quieted out and I you know calmed down and I went to find him and <clears throat> there was always something that happened like after these kinds of fights where I would like soften and like I would realize like I love him and like if this is just a spiritual attack I have to be there for him not against him like I have to be a team because I did, I loved him so much and I started to love him more than myself that I, I was able, I was like, I need to support this person and stand by this person. And so I went to go find him throughout the house. I found him in a room in the dark, um, huddled up in a ball, kind of just rocking back and forth. And I don't remember what he had said, but something had happened that had like posed this question of like, that he wants me dead. And so I was like, do you want me dead? Like, you tried to kill me. Like, and he said yes. And he told me that he was having these thoughts to chop my body up into really small pieces and that he could hide my body in Nepal where nobody could find me. And I remember just, like, racing back downstairs, locking the door. I'm like losing it I call his dad this was the first time where I ever had let in anybody like in family called his dad and I was like probably probably thought I was insane I was like crying and I was like he's gonna kill me he's gonna kill me and his dad couldn't believe what he was hearing but he also didn't seem to be like that surprised like he was definitely concerned But it didn't seem like he, it didn't seem like he was, I don't know, like if, if that were me and my child's, you know, my son's um, wife called me, I would be like, I would be on the first plane to that country to go help her because like that would be terrifying. And um, they had flown us on an emergency flight back home and, um, that was where I had decided that I was going to not be alone with him um, because I was obviously very, very, very terrified of him. Um, But his excuse was always that he didn't want those thoughts in his head and that it was just, you know, it wasn't his own. And um, over the course of that next day, he would continue to confess harm thoughts as well as very, very scary, um, twisted, perverted things that changed the course of our relationship really forever. Um, I could never shake those confessions and those confessions only manifested into actions later on in our marriage. And um, yeah, we flew back to New Mexico. Um, but actually, I'm sorry, before we flew back to New Mexico, um, 
we flew to North Carolina. Um, we had had sort of these friends slash mentors who were kind of also newly married and had experienced some very hard times in their marriage and could relate in certain ways to ours. Um, they had told us that we should go see this man um, who was in North Carolina who was doing um, these things called inner healings and that he could break basically the spiritual anything. And so we ended up going to see this man. He was a pastor and a theologian. And over the course of a few days, um, we did these things called inner healings where we, we filled out like these big packets of like our family history and he basically breaks off like any spiritual like ties that are like tied to that. <laughs> yeah. And um, I can just already see some of y'all like, you're like, what? Um, and what's crazy is that he actually had told me at one point, because I had a lot more in my family than he did. Um, I have a very broken family. I come from a very broken family. And um, he was like, you brought in these things. Like he's struggling because you brought in these things that haven't been broken off yet. And I won't even, like I genuinely can't even get into that because we're going to be here for a while if I unpack that. Um, but he sat with me in a room and we like broke off these, you know, demonic like ties and he had us do all this stuff. It was very weird. It was a very, very weird experience. And then at the end of it, um, you know, it's supposed to have like broken off of him. It didn't. Um, surprise. And um, that was the first time though that this this person, this pastor had sat with me and he said, I think that your husband has mental illness. And I think you need to take him to see a therapist and you should not go back um, to Nepal to be a missionary. And mental illness was a very scary word for me. Um, now, I mean, I can throw around that word. Like I can say that word and it doesn't do anything to me. Like, but sometimes I think about that and I'm like, man, I wonder if like people are uncomfortable by like certain topics that I say. Um, because I know I was for a long time. and. Now I'm so used to talking about it because I work with so many people who have, you know, spouses who are mentally ill or who have experienced mentally ill um, people. And so um, that was the first time that I ever opened my mind to the thought of him having a mental illness. And um, they had said that they thought that he could have something called obsessive compulsive disorder with intrusive thoughts. So... I'm going to explain what that is. Um, I know that many people know that obsessive compulsive disorder is like, we think of it as like someone who is like a neat freak um, who needs to have like all the towels like aligned in the bathroom or, um, you know, needs to like wash their hands 50 times a day. Um, that is also a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. But there is supposedly an illness called obsessive compulsive disorder, intrusive thoughts where it plagues the mind. And there are many different um, topics that come along with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and so it manifests into different intrusive thoughts and the thoughts will jump around so it won't just remain to be one topic. So some examples, so people who have 
obsessive compulsive disorder, intrusive thoughts, um, they have, they struggle with a series of different topics. These topics are, um, harm OCD. So it's, um, having difficulty being around sharp objects because they think of ways to chop somebody up or slice somebody's throat. Um, there is, um, like bestiality, which is like thoughts about animals. So having sex with animals, um, finding animals attractive, but the thought in their mind, it's like telling them that they are attracted to this dog, but they aren't. And they're not going to act on it and do anything to the dog, but their mind is telling them that they are attracted to animals. Um, another example is um, something called POCD, which is pedophilia OCD. And that is where essentially they have thoughts about children. And these can range from attraction to to sexual. And the other OCD um, thoughts can range from, oh man, there's like so many different ones. Like there's so many, you can look it up online and, and look up OCD intrusive thoughts topics and you'll find them. And then you can, if there's a whole community of people online. I mean, when I was told that he may have that for this pastor, I did a deep dive and for a very long time, I like almost, I just investigated it because I really wanted to understand it if that was what he had. And um, people who have OCD don't necessarily have to struggle with every single topic, but they can. So sometimes they'll only struggle with one or two and then other times they'll struggle with all of them. And it really just depends on the severity of the OCD. And I'd never heard of this up until that point, and so um, I didn't know if that was what it was or it wasn't, but I started to, um, you know, hope that he did have something like this and that he wasn't just some monster. And so we went back to New Mexico where we stayed with um, with my mom, and we ended up, um, living there for the next six months. I um, was searching for a therapist who specialized in OCD because of the pastor who had said that he may have that. And um, I forced him to go. Like, he didn't want to go. And his, his like, demeanor had really changed over that course of the six months. Like, he was not a very, like, he was very lazy. And I don't mean that in, like, a mean way, but, like, he just – you couldn't get him to do things like he did not follow. He had, there was no follow through to the things that he said he would do no like goals or like desire to like exercise. Um, just like laid around a lot. And, um, really I think was, I mean, it exemplified to me like depression, um, how that manifests, but, um, he wouldn't go to therapy and that sort of became this like fight for us. Like I'll stay if you go to therapy, but you need to get help. And so then he would go to sessions, but then he would not be consistent in them. And then, you know, that would be kind of where he'd go just enough to like keep me, to keep me calm. But then he would, I'm sorry, not necessarily to keep me calm, but like to like, you know, like calm the waters, make sure that nothing's 
stirred up. And then like when I would realize he's not going to therapy, then he'd be like, I'm so sorry. He'd go back, only go for a couple of sessions. He'd just give a little bit and then um, wouldn't follow through. <clears throat> and so this therapist has said he, she diagnosed him with that. She diagnosed him with obsessive compulsive disorder with intrusive thoughts. So um, as a wife, I did like my part to like really study it. I joined like support groups online, um, tried to like follow the advice from the therapist that they were giving me about what to do, but it was very difficult. Um, and so he had presented this idea that we should move to Germany with his family and that his family um, wanted to help us. They wanted to like help us financially um, and then be also like a moral support for us. And <clears throat> I really didn't want to go, um, but I felt like he needed to be around his close immediate family because I thought that they could help him and was really worried about him. And I remember my mom, I was crying to my mom and she told me, she said, nothing's permanent. You can always come home. And the night before I like laid by her and I just like, she just held me and I just wept and wept and wept. And like looking back, my mom later on was like, I knew something was wrong, but I did, I couldn't, I didn't know that it was to what extent now I know. Um, but she just helped me and she was so concerned for me because I was not that kind of person. Like I was very joyful and happy. And so like she saw like me just dissipating. And like, so when she saw me break down like that, she was like, what's like, tell me, like, just, it's, you can talk to me, but I, I couldn't, and I couldn't tell her. And, um, so we had moved to Germany, um, and we ended up living in the house where his family lives and his childhood home. <clears throat> and, um, sometimes I pause because I'm, I'm trying to think of like how to best explain certain things. Um, it being used against me um because defamation is a real thing um so his family had presented a lot of ideas of ways that they were going to help us and why we moved out there and those ways were not followed through and his family enabled him for the entire remainder of the years that I lived in Germany. They, ah, this is an important part that I skipped. Um, right before we moved to Germany, I found out I was pregnant with our son. And for those wondering, yes, it was pretty devastating to hear that I was pregnant. I did not want a baby at that point. But knowing that I was pregnant, um, now it wasn't just about me. And it became a lot scarier to know that I was bringing a kid into this world, into this marriage, and for him to have a father like this. And, you know, <laughs> I was, so I, I personally, like, just a quick Side note, I didn't grow up with my dad. Um, he lived in Hawaii, and then my mom, she didn't really raise me. My um, my G raised me, and <clears throat> so I grew up from like a very broken family. Um, 
with a lot of people trying to love me the best that they could and best that they knew how. Um, but something for me that I always wanted was a family. And I could not wait to one day be a mom and to give that child what I didn't have, which is just like a, a family, like a normal family life. And so fast forward to being pregnant, I felt like I <clears throat> didn't want to put my child in a situation where they were just like didn't already have a dad. And um, it hit very close to home for me. And so I was trying to do everything that I could to like salvage this marriage and like make it work and stand by his side. And so his family didn't acknowledge the fact that I was pregnant when I moved there. Um, <clears throat> they weren't very like warm towards me and they all spoke German, um, but majority of them could speak English. Um, some of it was broken, but others could speak full English and nobody spoke English to me. Like we would sit at dinner tables, they would all speak German and I would be sitting there and feel just like so alone and be surrounded by all these people, but like nobody would ask me questions or like talk to me about anything. And it became this very lonely experience being pregnant in a new country with like no friends and family, nobody knowing what's going on, but also like nobody even asking me if I'm okay. And over the course of like the next six months, we would live with their family and it was very, very challenging. And it also revealed to me a lot of ways that his family may have impacted his mental health um, moving forward. Um, and there were a lot of very... Yeah, I'll give some examples. Um, so someone in his family, in his immediate family, had made a comment, for example, at dinner one night. We had joined again, you know, joined with another side of the family. So it was a very big deal. They were meeting me for the first time. And everybody's speaking in German. I don't understand a lick of German at that point besides like <laughs> one, two, three, and I love you. Um, and... I noticed the behaviors of people started to like shift and um that was kind of where so I got really good at um reading people's body language and it became this thing that I depended on for years trying to figure out how people felt because I couldn't necessarily understand them or understand social situations so I would like look at people's body language to recognize someone's uncomfortable someone's excited someone's laughing and, and happy or you know whatever it is um or someone's mad and um everybody kind of just got very tense and so I turned to my ex-husband and I was like hey what happened and he was like you don't want to know and I was like I do like what happened and he told me that this family member had said that they wished that I would have um not been pregnant and that he would have used a condom because then we wouldn't all be sitting here at this table. He, mind you, there's like 20 other family members at this table and it's my first time meeting them. It was humiliating. I left the table, went to the bathroom, cried, and he came back and, you know, stuff like this like would would continue. So it was like little bits of like bringing my self-confidence down through family members. Um, <clears throat> like I would be introduced as the fat daughter-in-law. I was, you know, gaining weight. I was pregnant. 
And um, they thought it was funny, like, to call me a fat daughter-in-law. And, you know, it was just, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of, like, conflict in that house. And um, I started to develop, like, a lot of, like, issues with my heart. So, like, I um, would notice that my heart would be racing. I feel like I couldn't breathe. And, um my my heart would like pound and then like I felt like it would like I was having like an arrhythmia or something and so I couldn't figure out what was going on and so I ended up going to a um, cardiologist who did a bunch of tests and he sat down with me and he was like very very kind and he was like are you okay and I'm like yeah I'm fine and why and he was like are you stressed and I'm like a little bit but I'm okay like just giving him bare minimum answers and he told me that I had anxiety and like that, that was like manifesting and making me feel like, you know, the heart issues because I have, um, I'm having panic attacks. And he was like, whatever's going on, you need to remove yourself because like you're pregnant and it's not safe for the baby and da da da. And so, um, or, you know, it could be harmful to the baby. And so I had communicated that to him and to, I was like, you know, we need to move out. Like, we need to live somewhere. We can live near your family, but, like, I don't want to live in this house with your family. Um, And there was just a lot of, like, very controlling behaviors, and they didn't want us to leave and didn't want us to move out. But if we did move out and when we had decided to move out, then there was a consequence for that, which meant, like, lack of any type of, like, financial support. So they were like, you're on your own. And they were like, I remember one of his family members was like, do you have any like towels, bath towels? And we were like, no, we don't because we didn't. We were using everything they had. And then this person was like, well, like tough luck, like better go buy some. Like, and keep in mind, I'm like six months pregnant at this point. Um, and it was like a really, really rough time and rough season. Um, rough's not even the word. I don't even know what the word is. If you know what it is and you're listening to this, text me and be like, this is the word Maya because like I don't even know what it is. Um, oh, and they made me um, – so Germany had this rule where you had to like learn um, a certain level of the language and be proficient in order to stay in the country. And when I moved there, he didn't tell me that. But um, we found out, and so um, I had to start going to a school five days a week from, like, 8 until 12, and um, I was going to take a test in six months to, like, learn German. And um, so I was, like, really pregnant, um, taking, like, U-Bonds, or I guess it's, like, what do they call them? So there's trains, but there's the other one. I forget what it's called. Um, It's, like, a subway. And so I take a subway and a train and another train or like, and I would like have to keep taking different things to like get down to the school. Like his family didn't like help. And then I would like in rain or whatever the weather may be, I would like lug myself back and like waddle myself back to this house. Like like an hour there, an hour back, 45 minutes or something. Like it was, it was literally awful. Like I look back and I can't help but like a little bit laugh. Like I'm like, come on, like that was bad. But they just like really didn't supply any sort of like help. I was really on my own there. And um, this school though, looking back, I like am eternally grateful for it. And like I've thanked God about it because or for it because like 
as angry as I was at that time, because I was like, God, like, why are you making me like go to school here? Like, I, I don't want to do this, you know, but it, it really kept me like going because it gave me something to look forward to. And it gave me something to like strive for. And it also got me through those last years on my own um, when I was trying to leave um, him. And, and so it like, yeah, it really just like helped me, um, and equipped me. And I think sometimes there's things that like God does and puts us in situations where like, we don't want to do them and it, we'd rather just skip over that part. But sometimes those are the, the parts of life that are going to be so helpful in whatever he's planning that's ahead. And, you know, so we were on our own. We moved into another house and we lived on our own. At that point, on and off, he was seeing therapists. I um, had given him like an ultimatum that he needed to get on some level of medication because he was very unwell. And the medication did help stabilize him for certain seasons, but then he would stop taking the pills. And I found out at one point that he was like hiding them and not taking them. And so, um, for those who are like familiar with medication, like it's very dangerous to just like go cold turkey because you'll have withdrawals. Um, but it also can just really mess with you if you aren't taking them consistently and that's what was happening. And so it was really just like a whole nother ball game of like trying to navigate having been pregnant and then having someone who I feel like I'm taking care of and having to ensure that he's also mentally stable. Um, when I had my son, I had a really traumatic birth. Um, I actually almost died in childbirth. Um, I had hemorrhaged and like bled out so bad that, um, I almost died. And that was traumatic in itself. Um, I lost my, my father around this time as well. Um, he passed away. And so it was like, things were just like collapsing around me and I fell into a very, very deep, um, postpartum depression after I had my son. Um, because I had lost so much blood, I was anemic and, um, I was so anemic that I could barely lift my arms, like raise my arms up. So I couldn't hold him and rock him or put him in his bed. Um, I would have to take breaks in grocery stores. Like I was very, very ill and I had, um, it took a long time for me to get better. And, um, for a, a time I couldn't breastfeed him because I didn't, wasn't producing milk because I had, was anemic. And so it was very hard and it, it triggered this postpartum depression that I fell into. And those were some of the darkest days I think I've ever had just because I couldn't see past, I couldn't see past my current life. And I felt very trapped and very alone. Um, and was still dealing with like the mental instability that he had um, because I needed and I relied on him to like check on check on our son sometimes during the night or to help. And it was never guaranteed that he was going to be stable for long. And so there would be periods of time, like maybe days or even a week where he would be good and um, he'd be normal. But then like something would happen and he would just like flip and be like a different, the, the other two would, the, the two would come out and then it'd be the other side. And we had had instances where he like punched a wall once with our, our newborn in his, in his arms. Um, 
where our son like was crying and he said that he would go in and check on him and then I found him like sleeping near the bed and he like didn't go check on him so our son was like crying and crying and crying and um just like very careless like fatherhood um and that kind of like digressed um there's portions to like my story that I can't talk about and things that like I'm just not released to like just to share um but with our son being involved it everything changed because it wasn't just about me anymore um if I got hurt or if I couldn't handle it that was one thing but now I had this little person and I needed to be strong and I needed to be secure for him and it wasn't. And so everything became about me getting myself together for him. Um, and it's tough like because I just don't think about this very often anymore. Um, so I'm just like thinking about very important things that I should talk about um, that I would be allowed to talk about. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there was just, there was a lot of like erratic behavior um, that had started. So some examples would be that he would um, find a lot of like people's trash on the street. So people would put out things like couches or, you know, random trinkets and he would bring them home that's all fine. Like we love, we love a good like DIY project. Um, but I'm talking like hoarding people's junk and saying that he was going to fix it or do something with it. And then it, they're just being piles of stuff in like our cellar or like in one of our rooms. And he would just bring things home all the time or like, or at night, like wouldn't come home and like do that. Um, when we would fight, he would leave and like, he wouldn't come home for hours and it would be like 3 a.m. 2 a.m. Um, he started to like gamble money um, that we needed and put us into raffles um, and we would have to pay like a certain amount if he won the raffle but like that money was like money that we needed to eat and like get diapers for our kid and we so like it was just it was a very erratic behavior um, one time he like found drugs on the side of the street and um he brought it home to show me <laughs> like and I was like why do you have this like why would you bring this home and he was like I wanted to show you it's like cool like it's like someone dropped drugs on the street it was just I mean very very erratic behavior very weird behavior very bizarre and at this point like I sort of had like compartmentalized to function as a mom and trying to deal with like my postpartum depression and raising this kid and getting better and then like he was sort of just behaving very like bizarre bizarrely is not a word but he was behaving weird and we kind of went on for this went on with this and had this lifestyle for a couple of years um and I would meet with therapists as well that were coincided with obsessive compulsive disorder and 
they would give me tips on how to handle confessions. Um, the confessions did change and they, um, like I had mentioned earlier, jumped into different topics. Um, so I, at the time, thought that it was OCD. I'll make that clear. I do not now um, believe it is OCD and it has been it has been spoken by his own therapist that he was misdiagnosed and it is not obsessive compulsive disorder intrusive thoughts. But that is where everything makes things sticky. And that may be confusing for some. I will get into that. But um, to kind of conclude with our story, um, we went on like that for a couple of years. Um, the aggression never really stopped. He still would throw things and confess things and the confessions would jump around to different things, different topics. They got worse and worse and worse. Um, but Nepal was really like the, the part where that was the climax, I think. And then after that, it started to just be like continual confessions and weird behavior. Um, and during this time, I started to gain actually a lot of weight, um, because I was eating in order to like, I think just have comfort and I just like couldn't stop eating. And so I just kept gaining weight and gaining weight. Like I, you would not recognize me probably. Like I just looked so different and <clears throat> I was just very depressed. Um, and like my family, like there was no hiding it at that point that like, I think a lot of people knew something was wrong, but just couldn't really figure it out. And I started to share my story with people, but it was like in small increments. So I'd like give just enough to kind of like tip my toe in the water and like check like the temperature and like, usually the temperature was like too cold. So I wouldn't say anything and like get back out. Um, so I was very afraid to like share. Um, but I started to like share bits and pieces and it wasn't until I had shared something, um, with a newer friend that I had had. She was also a Christian. She lived in like one of the villages nearby. And she said to me, she said, Maya, that has happened to my mom. And she told me the story of her mom. She was like married for four years to an abusive man. And then the stories were incredibly similar, like incredibly similar and I thought up until that point like if anybody ever knew this story I surely like somebody's gonna write something about it because this is crazy like my story's crazy and I thought this was like so unique to myself but then when she told me her mom's story I was like why is that so similar and then she said Maya I think you're being abused I had never even considered considered that word like because I he had never hit me and so I was like no like abuse like that's like battered women like I'm not I'm not battered um that's not that didn't happen to me and over the course of like the next like month God would bring people plant them in my path who would share their stories for some odd reason and we'd be very intertwined and they were women who were being abused um and that was where I started to kind of I believe God was like throwing that rope out and like helping me out. Um, many people may have an issue with that statement I just said. I don't know. Um, I'm getting tired. Sharing my trauma. Oh, it's just a lot. My mind is like, my mind is tired. Um, I started to consider it that maybe I could be being abused. Um, things started to escalate. Um, 
his therapist had actually told me that I needed to remove myself from the situation because things were escalating. And she actually told me that she felt like he may be misdiagnosed because of his behavior. And just our stories were very different. Um, Like he would go to sessions and say everything was fine. And then it would be farthest from fine. And she'd be like, he's, he's playing me. Um, so she had recommended that I go visit my family in America. So I decided they'd never met my son. And so we um, had decided I was going to go to America to visit my family and for them to meet my, um, my son. And he started to escalate in the days leading up to that. Um, and there's like a pivotal moment that for me was like, I think it amplified the fact that I was in danger um, because he had taken a butcher knife from our block and we had a really expensive knife that we had bought. It was like from China. It was sitting on the table and he had, we had just finished having a fight and he was mad at me about something and he had like written this letter about how like just terrible of a human I am and put the knife on the in the direct middle of the table with this letter that he was writing and when I walked out of the room and I saw it I kind of just bolted for the door got my keys and I like locked myself in my car and it was like winter time it was very cold and I called my mom crying and I was like he's gonna I think he's gonna kill me like I think he's gonna kill me and I waited until he had gone to bed and um I went back in the house and I hit, actually hid the knife in our sock drawer. And I called his mom and told her what had happened and she dismissed it. And I said, someone needs to help us. Like someone, he needs help. Like somebody needs to help us. And she said that they were too busy to help. And um, that he, it's just a knife and he would never do anything. <laughs> and it was really by the grace of God that I survived that um because in those last days he just got very aggressive and was threatening me and even came at me at one point and up until that point he had never done anything like he'd never hurt me physically um but he was escalating and I do believe that like if I wouldn't have left like he would have hurt me and it wasn't until I had already left that I found out that he had had thoughts and plans to actually take my life um when I moved home, I got a lawyer. Um, at that point, I still, it was very hard for me to consider divorce as an option because I was just, at that point, like, I was not, like, tied to him in love. Like, it was not, like, I love this person and I want to be with this person. It was, like, I love God and, like, I don't want to disappoint God. And we had had mentors and pastors telling us that if I left him permanently, that I couldn't get married again, that that was not biblical, that um, I was potentially ruining my son's life, and really a lot of, like, condemnation and fear just, like, instilled in me. And so I was very terrified to, like, to divorce him and didn't know if that was the right decision. And so I thought that by, like, even considering divorce and, like, by choosing divorce, I was, like, choosing to not be a Christian. And, like, that breaks my heart to, like, hear myself say that and know that that was how I believed it to be. But, like, and maybe if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, you're like, gosh, this is why I'm not Christian. Like, I don't want 
to put a bad rap on Christians because not all Christians are like this. But I was involved in a very charismatic group and dare I say cultish group that I think is, you know, just preaching a lot of like poor theology, bad theology. And like that is not like that is not like the father's heart. And so I don't want to put a bad rap on Christians as a whole. What I experienced, I think, is like unique. Um, I don't think that's common. Um, but I will say that like finding a church that preaches sound theology and like really going to a place where you know what they believe and like asking them the hard questions to like figure out where they stand on things, that's a really important thing. Um, and so when I, yeah, (laughs) getting off tangent again, when I moved home, um, my lawyer was like, it doesn't matter like what you're saying, like you could be abused, like, and it doesn't stand in court because you don't have any proof. You need proof. And so, um, we had had been having a couple of phone calls and he had shared some confessions through these phone calls and it just so happens that I was also recording these phone calls because I was waiting to see if there was anything I could use in court and he confessed some of the biggest most horrendous things like on this phone call and I have the recording and it flipped my whole world as I knew it upside down. I went to my lawyer, took the tape, pressed charges in Germany, and that's still under investigation to my knowledge. Filed a few months later when I found out that he wanted to come here, um, filed for a restraining order. And It's only because of what's on these tapes through that phone call that I'm able to have been in the place that I am. Um, I was able to keep a temporary restraining order for a year. And that is very uncommon. Like, very. Usually you have one for like a month to two months. You have court. They grant whatever they grant. They lose it or you keep it. And then next. This judge, she held on to this restraining order for dear life because she knows I am unsafe. She knows it. And the only reason that it was dropped, it was dropped multiple times and then she kept it, the case open so that I could keep reapplying and keep reapplying, which is very uncommon, um, was because there are so many loopholes within the German system and he has managed to find every single one. So for an example, there was one point where it had been served to him. My friends in Germany had taken the papers to his home, served it, <clears throat> and then I find out that Now, um, the papers need to be translated in German because that's a law and he needs to understand, um, he needs to understand what's happening in German. (laughs) He speaks fluent English and has spoken fluent English since he was two years old, two years old, guys. 
So I had to pay, like, in total, I think over the last months, I've probably paid, like, a couple thousand to get these documents translated. He hired a German translator for court because he needs to understand what's happening in court. It's, I mean, it's a game. It is a pure game. And um, over the course of like, yeah, the last year, there's been several loopholes that he's found. Every time there's something new that comes up and certain permission we need granted for video access or for for him to sign something, you know, it just continues to be an issue. And eventually my judge was like, or our judge was like, look, like, can't keep doing this. It's wasting like your money. It's wasting his money. Like you need to get it served to him. And so we kept, I paid more and more money to get it served, but then there was another loophole and that was kind of where she was like, she dropped it. She was like, I can't, I can't keep holding this for a year. Like it, and it's like, she knows that I'm unsafe. And what's crazy about the system is that it doesn't matter how unsafe you are. Like you have to play by the rules. Like there are house rules. And if you don't play by them, like you don't, like you don't get to like have a free pass just because you're unsafe. Like you have to comply with the rules. You have to comply with the laws. And I couldn't comply with the German laws because there's so many that are so intricate and I don't have enough money for an international lawyer. And so like I was just fighting for dear life for us for like the last year. And um like really a lot of my expenses like went towards that as well and like luckily I had people who helped me um to pay for certain like lawyer fees as well. Um but it's just pretty crazy like and something that I see so often with like moms who I talk to is like it's not uncommon like in an abusive marriage to have like your finances be controlled by the other person and for us that was the case. I like didn't have access to our bank accounts. I didn't have a job. He wanted me to be a stay-at-home mom and so when I um, left him I like lost everything because my job was our home, our family, our child meals and you don't get paid for that and he was the sole income provider and so when we came home I lost that he didn't pay child support I think for like a full year or eight months um it wasn't he didn't start paying child support until the court hearings were about to come and then he started to give me money which is you know you can you can add those up um and more recently, we had like a bigger victory because the court clinician um, actually denied access for him to see his son. He had flown here from Germany and I was given like a very poor short notice that he was going to be here. And I was like told to prepare my child to like meet this person who he doesn't even know, he doesn't even know exists. And I went to great lengths to explain what was happening and the clinicians evaluated him like and they agreed that they didn't think it was like in our child's best interest um so now we're in a standstill he is living still in europe and it continues to change what he wants um at one point he gave he said I could have cuss like he said I could have him and he's never gonna take him away from me. The next minute he wants to make all the joint decisions about, you know, vaccines or 
you know, where he goes to, like, school or just different important topics. Then he wants joint custody. Then I hear that he wants my son sent on a plane back to Germany. Then at one point he presses charges that I kidnapped our son. And so there's an open, um, an open investigation under the Hague Convention that could potentially, like, pull us back to Germany. I mean, you guys, like, it is, it is, like, never ending. And I share all of this stuff from a place of like genuinely like something that I had shared in the first um episode so in my honeymoon horror story um is like I had this stance of kind of like um you don't need to feel bad for sharing what happened to you because they were the ones who chose to abuse you and so like it's not your story that needs to be kept quiet just because of someone's actions. And like, while I do agree to an extent with that, I do want to kind of add to that. Um, I think sometimes something I've realized while advocating within the domestic violence um, community is that um, a lot of people have this stance of like, um, like, well, like, excuse me, like F them for doing what they did. Um, F them for, you know, making me lose all my money and my house and all this stuff. And then now I'm like having to pay all these like lawyer fees and da, 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 da. And like that, that will never be my, be my heart behind what was her name. Like I don't host this podcast for people to come on here and just like, just like (laughs) rage on about somebody who hurt them. That it's not a hate podcast. Like it's not, that's not the intention behind it. Um, and I think that could be what some people thought I meant. I'm not, nobody's ever said that, but as I've like re-listened to it, I was like, I need to clarify this and what my heart is behind what was her name. Because, um, I think that someone's actions and someone who was abusive and acted in abusive ways, um, that's never okay, and there's never an exception for that. Um, and while I will say it's very valid for the person on the other end to feel angry, to feel bitter, to feel resent, resentful, um, and I'm not going to say that those are not normal, valid um, emotions that someone should feel, I will say that it's very toxic and harmful for you to carry out those emotions and to continually be bitter, resentful, and just rage about somebody who hurt you because it does nothing but keep you in the very stagnant circle that you fought so hard to get out of with that person. Um, Because when you're out, I think the system makes it really hard for survivors to survive out of it. Um, There's a lot of people I've seen in our community who've lost their lives Um, who've lost their children, who are in extreme custody battles, who've lost all their money or their homes, who are working multiple jobs, and um, lawyers who are failing them, and restraining orders that are being dropped in it. It's like the system almost like, (laughs) dare I say, like, it it, dare I say, like, re-abuses them in a way because it's like mistreats survivors, and there's such a, a lack of, like, resource for victims of abuse and so I think it adds fuel to the fire for um, survivors to feel angry at the person who hurt them Um, and so while I'm not negating that 
it's totally valid to feel the things that you're feeling. I have felt them too. I have been angry and had hatred towards this person who destroyed my life and, 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 you know, who messed everything up for us. Um, I will say that that was not a healthy place to be in. And since then, my perspective has changed in a sense. Um, bear with me. There's grace. And I know that's not something that some people want to hear and you may be like, ah, this is where I ended and I'm going to turn it off now. Um, no, guys, there's grace. Um, do I believe that somebody with abusive tendencies can change? 100%. Do I believe that someone who is abusive can turn their life around and not abuse somebody again? 100%. Do I think that there needs to be boundaries set? Like between you and somebody who was abusive towards you? 100%. Do I think that they should necessarily raise their child? No. But like, I believe and that like when there is true repentance um, and somebody like openly confesses like what they've done and recognizes and repents from it and like gets the proper treatment and help that they need, I do think that lives can change because that's what, that's what like redemption is about. That's what God is in the business for. And so I 100% believe that. And I believe that for my ex-husband as well. The issue that I have and why I continue to fight for full custody and full freedom is because God instructed me to, but also that there has not been any accountability. There has been no real true repentance. And there's, they continue, he continues to deny allegations and not get the proper treatment that he needs to heal the issues and areas that he needs to work through. And so that's how I know that he's not taking it seriously and he's not in the business of actually being changed is because he continues to deny the things that he did. And that's that's where I draw the line. That's where the boundary is drawn. Um, and so, you know, it's I tread a very fine line here with this podcast as a Christian. And I know that when I created this podcast – you know, to be totally transparent, people turned their backs on me. Um, you know, there have been people who don't agree with what I'm doing, which is fine. Like, if, if you don't agree with this podcast and people sharing their stories um, because you think that it, you know, isn't showing God's grace and love and mercy, that's fine. Like, I'm, you're entitled to your own opinion. Um, but the reason that I host this podcast and air these stories is because one, like I had a very specific dream that God gave me about starting this podcast, but two, um, you'll know it by its fruit. And I have seen fruit from this podcast that only glorifies God. And that's why I'm after, like, that's why I'm here. And, um, it's tough to like to like have such a vulnerable place with so many vulnerable stories um and to tread this line of like this isn't like some hate podcast where we're like yeah like these are all the people who hurt us and like now we're gonna like stream all your baggage online like oh like it's not that's not what this is for it's because 
people have stories in things that have happened to them and like naturally a conversation like this would not come up like you're not going to ask somebody so you ever been abused like it, it doesn't come up and the less that it's talked about the easier it is for others to not be aware of a situation that they may be in or an experience that they may have had and so that's why like advocating is so important and this podcast is so important is because it provides a space for stories to be here and to have a place it makes survivors feel like what happened to them wasn't in vain but it also provides a platform for people to come to and I I believe that God leads people to this podcast and then they listen to a story like just the right one for them Um, because all of our stories are so unique and so different but all so intertwined and intermingled that it's wild and um, you'll hear some that are so similar and that's because like in the realms of abuse the tendencies are the same um, and behaviors are the same it's like you know, in the beginning, I used to think like, whoa, like he did that to you. Like that happened to me. Like that's crazy. And then like, as I started to learn more, um, I was like, oh, it's just the same as, you know, if someone, for an example, if someone's bipolar and then someone is schizophrenic and the schizophrenic person is talking um, to themselves and has all of these different like characters or people or whatever. And the bipolar person is like acting in extremes. It's like, you meet somebody else who acts that way and you're like, whoa, that's so crazy. My schizophrenic, my schizophrenic friend does that. And then it's because they're both schizophrenic. Like that's why they both act like that or that's why, you know, and so maybe that's a crap example. I'm not really sure. But my point in saying that is that like when it comes to abuse, um, the tendencies are all there and they're all very similar because it's abuse and um, it's not unique to anybody, but the way that those are carried out can be, you know, unique and, and um to each person different and so that's why what was her name is here um and I'll always maintain a level of like I fully believe that people can turn their lives around but it only comes through reconciliate like the reconciliation like comes through like repentance and accountability those things need to be had and until they're had um, I don't buy for a single second that somebody has changed. And so that's why this, this platform is here, um, to help others, um, to get out before it's, it's too late. Um, I really appreciate all of the people who are listening to this episode and have taken time to listen to this episode, but I also appreciate just, um, the listeners that are supporting what was her name, um, what was her name wouldn't happen if it weren't for you like and that sounds kind of cheesy like because of your participation like you know we thank you very much but like we literally couldn't do this if it weren't for you listening because that's we need people to listen to it so that people can share it and people can relate and resonate to it that's why we share it and so um it comforts survivors to know that somebody heard them and took the time to hear them and listen because a lot a lot of times people didn't and they were dismissed and so it's a very special thing here. Uh, if this podcast has impacted you in any way, shape, or form, um, it really helps this podcast a lot 
if you would on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify or maybe both rate the podcast and also write a review on Apple Podcast of your experience because um yeah what a better way to like show people that it's helping and that it's it's changing lives and and also sharing it to your stories or even just DMing somebody and sharing it that's how I've gotten connected with a lot of people actually and even people who've um, shared their stories more recently because a friend of a friend shared a podcast and then here they are. Um, So that being said, uh, this is going to be the replacement episode for Honeymoon Horror Story and we're going to leave this one here as till death. Um, I really appreciate everybody listening and tune in next week for the next episode. Thanks guys.